All right, how are we doing, Community of Faith, this morning? Yeah? If you're watching online, we're so glad that you're a part with us, too. Just consider yourself family. You know, one of the things I love about our church is that we're a place where it's okay to have doubts. In fact, I think it's good to have doubts. Believers, I think that we need to have doubts. Doubts don't bother God at all. In fact, I think a believer without any doubts is kind of like a body without any antibodies. It's not very strong when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to uh, an intelligent skeptic questioning uh, some things. So we need to have doubts. And when you have doubts and you explore them deeply, which you have free reign to do here at Community of Faith, then you come out the other side so much stronger. And another thing that you do, you also are able to identify, commiserate with those who are here that are skeptics that have so many doubts. And if you're here and that's you, you're welcome. But skeptics, I want you also to doubt. Some of you are going, oh, Mark, that's all I do is doubt. What are you talking about? No, I want you to doubt your doubts even, all right? Because I think that's healthy. See, all doubts... As, no matter how cynical they may seem, they, they have a, a, a faith behind them. Because you can't uh, doubt belief A, for example, unless you have a, a strong belief in belief B, that it's accurate. Let me explain what I mean. Every doubt is based on faith. Some people say, I don't believe in Christianity because I can't accept the existence of moral absolutes. Everyone should determine moral truth for him or herself. Is that a statement that you can prove to someone who doesn't believe it? No, it's a leap of faith. It's a deep belief that individual rights are not only in the political realm, but they're in the, the moral realm. They operate in the moral realm as well. And there's no empirical proof for such a position. It, it's a leap of faith. Somebody might respond, well, Mark, my doubts aren't based on a, on a leap of faith. I have no beliefs about God one way or another. I simply feel no need for God, and I'm not interested really in even thinking about it. Again, hidden beneath this feeling is it's a very modern American belief, but there's faith there that the existence of God is a matter of indifference unless it intersects with my emotional needs. See, the speaker, the skeptic who says this is basing his or her life on the fact that no God exists who would hold you accountable for your beliefs and would hold you accountable for your behavior if you didn't feel the need for him. And that may be true or may not be true, but again, it's quite a leap of faith. So I think the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the belief underneath each one of your doubts. Ask yourself, what reasons do I have for believing it? How do I know this belief is true? I think it would be inconsistent to require more justification from your Christian brothers or sisters than you require of yourself. And so in fairness, you need to doubt your doubts. I think a lot of times what we discover is that our doubts are not built on as solid a foundation as they first appeared. 
You know, a lot of skeptics that I talk to say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible who punishes and judges people because I believe in a God of love. My question is, where did you get the idea that God is a God of love? Where did that idea come from? Did it come from the natural world? We look at that and if you are believing that there is no God and, and that we evolved, we see survival of the fittest in the natural world, right? And it's the strong over the weak. Annie Dillard, who is a, a writer, she wanted to go and spend a year by a little creek out in, the, out in the woods and kind of like on Walden's Pond, do that Thoreau thing, you know? And she said after about six weeks of it, she was horrified. She said, there is no human being as evil as a praying mantis. She's watched this little praying mantis, you know, eat all these little other animals, uh, other insects. And, and, and so looking at the natural world, you don't come up with God as a God of love. What about our physical world around us right now? Is there anything in it that proves that God is a God of love with all that's going on? Murder, rape, those dictatorships, war. What about from history? Well, look back across history and I can see that God is a God of love. Again, genocide, war, over and over and over. Well, what about the texts of the, of the great religions? You see, I, I used to think that the core of all great religions was that God is a God of love. But as I began to study the great religions of the world, I realized that that wasn't accurate. In fact, Buddhism, which I was one that I, I liked next to Christianity, um, doesn't even have a God at all. And so, you know, love is a personal thing. There's no personal God. So there's no real love there. And so many of the other great religions, I mean, even if you look at some of the old uh, religions, it was always like the world was birthed out of this great turmoil and God's warring against each other. And, and, and so in none of the texts, not Confucius, not, uh, you know, Buddhism, not Islam, do you see that God is a God of love? So where did we get the idea that God is a God of love. I think the only source that we can find that says that God is a God of love is the Bible. And the Bible tells us that this God of love is also a God of judgment. He's gonna put all things in the world right at the end. The belief in a, in a God of pure love who accepts everyone, judges no one, is a powerful act of faith that in a, in a God that perhaps we created in our in our own mind, there's almost no historical, not any textual, religious support for it outside of Christianity. C.S. Lewis recognized that modern objections to God are based on a, a sense of fair play and justice. People, we believe, ought not to suffer. People, we believe, ought not to be excluded. People, we believe, ought not to die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence, the strong over the weak. All of these things are perfectly natural. So on what basis does an atheist judge 
the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, unjust. The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at justice at all. In fact, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga said it like this. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there's no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there's a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation or outrage of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there is really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. In short, the problem of tragedy, suffering, injustice, it's a problem for everyone, not just for those who believe in God. For the person who doesn't believe in God, it's just as big of a problem. Plantinga goes on to say, it's therefore a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God, it somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. For if there is no God, there is no true evil. All acts are natural. As the lion hunts the zebra, so the rapist or the murderer stalks his prey. He's stronger. So he's within his natural rights to do whatever he wants to do. You know, you might say, I can't believe in God because of suffering and evil. I would say, I can't not believe in God because of suffering and evil and the fact that we are outraged by it. I love your questions. This series is a difficult one because we've just taken your questions and we're trying to answer each and every one of them. Uh, And Wes and I are going through this and And your questions, I mean, they just seem like they get tougher and tougher. So today, for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about hell. You didn't realize we're going to talk about hell today, did you? But we are. The question is, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? They did a big survey back in 2003. A research group discovered that 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. And less than 1% think they might go to hell. And I don't know about the other percentage where they thought they were going, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of where it is. Robert Bella's influential work, Habits of the Heart, he speaks of the expressive individualism that kind of characterizes American culture today. In his book, he says that 80% of Americans agree with this statement. An individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. So Bella concludes that the most fundamental belief in American culture is that moral truth is relative. Our culture, therefore, has no problem with a God of love who supports us no matter how we live or what we believe. It does, however, object strongly to the idea of a God who punishes people. This objection is unique to Western culture, Bella says. It's not something that you see across the globe. In fact, like if you go to the Middle East, they're offended at a totally different thing. They're offended at the idea of a forgiving God who would say, turn the other cheek because they believe in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
It's interesting because Jesus taught more about hell than all of the other biblical writers combined. Did you know that? And before we dismiss that, I I want you to think about what we're saying if we say, I just can't believe in hell. We're saying Jesus, preeminent teacher of love and grace in all of history, I am less barbaric than you are. I am more compassionate and wiser than you. That probably should make us stop for a minute and, and, and just consider. Modern Americans inevitably think that hell works kind of like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the time we get to the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. And as the poor soul falls through space, they cry out for mercy. God, give me mercy. And God goes, nope, too late, too late, right? You're doomed to hell for all of eternity. Now you will suffer. But this caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. Jesus, in talking about it, he, he gave parables and he also used the word Gehenna. We'll, we'll look at that. But he said this in Matthew 25. He, he said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he told the story of a man who went on a journey and he gave to his three servants, his three slaves, money to work with and do things in his name. And then he comes back after a long time and two of the slaves did some amazing things, but one just buried it in the ground and went and did his own thing. And it's, it's interesting because verse 21 of chapter 25 to one of the servants who, who did what the master had wanted him to do, he said, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. And Jesus is saying, that's what heaven is, the joy of the master. See, all through eternity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have this huge joy that they share because you can only share love and joy. You can't just you know, do it by, all by yourself. It, 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 it's this triune God, and they share that, and they want us to enter into their joy with them. Enter the joy of your master, not your joy, not a great joy, but my joy, enter my joy. But then it's interesting because he talks about hell. He says in verse 30, this worthless slave, throw the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What an interesting phrase, gnashing of teeth. I've always thought, oh, it's because it's so terrible. You just, ah, it's so awful. But when you look at all the other scriptures that talk about gnashing of teeth, it always has to do with anger. It's about being angry. In fact, it, it talks about Stephen when they stoned him. He was the first martyr stoned for Jesus and his cause. And And in the book of Acts, it talks about him. And the religious leaders were so angry, they gnashed their teeth at him, it says. Psalms talks about, uh, it has a, a verse that says, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. So this whole idea of gnashing of teeth, it's more of an anger against God. I don't like you. I don't think you're fair. I don't like what you've done. I'm gonna gnash my teeth 
at you. And it's interesting because Jesus uses a lot of metaphor when he's talking about hell, outer darkness, fire. You know, those can't exactly go together. If it's totally dark and fire, how does that work? You know, he's trying to explain something to you. He's trying to help us get it. So he's saying that there's gonna be this great gnashing of teeth in hell. It's gonna be a lot of people that are really angry at God, that don't want God to rule over them. Romans chapter one really gives us an understanding, gives us kind of the seeds of hell. I just wanna read it to you. It's a powerful passage from Paul, the apostle. And he says this, I refuse to be ashamed of sharing the wonderful message of God's liberating power unleashed in us through Christ. For I am thrilled to preach that everyone who believes is saved. Not those who are good enough, not those whose good outweighs their bad, those who believe in Jesus. This gospel unveils a continual revelation of God's righteousness, a perfect righteousness, but it's given to us when we believe and it moves us from receiving life through faith to the power of living by faith. This is what the scripture means when it says we are right with God through life-giving faith. For God in heaven unveils his holy anger breaking forth against every form of sin, both toward ungodliness that lives in hearts and evil actions for the, the wickedness of humanity deliberately smothers the truth and keeps people from acknowledging the truth about God. In reality, the truth of God is known instinctively, Paul says, for God has embedded this knowledge inside every human heart. Opposition to truth cannot be excused on the basis of ignorance because from the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God's nature have been made visible, such as his eternal power and transcendence. And he has made his wonderful attributes easily perceived for seeing the visible makes us understand the invisible. So then this leaves everyone without excuse. Throughout human history, Paul says, the fingerprints of God were upon them, yet they refused to honor him as God or even be thankful for his kindness. Instead, they entertained corrupt and foolish thoughts about what God was like. This left them with nothing but misguided hearts steeped in moral darkness. Although claiming to be wise, they were in fact shallow fools. For only a fool would trade the unfading splendor of the immortal God to worship the fading image of other humans. This is why God lifted off his restraining hand and let them have full expression of their sinful and shameful desires. Since they had no mind to recognize God, he turned them loose to follow the unseemly designs of their depraved minds and to do things that should not be done. Their days are filled with all sorts of godless living, wicked schemes, greed, hatred, endless desire for more, murder, violence, deceit, spitefulness. And as if that were not enough, they are gossiping, slanderous, God-hating, rude, egotistical, smug people who are always come up, coming up with even more dreadful ways to treat one another. They don't listen to their parents. They lack understanding and character. They're simple-minded, covenant-breaking, heartless, and unmerciful. They are not to be trusted. Despite the fact that they are fully aware that God's law says this way of life deserves death, they fail to stop. And worse, they applaud others on this destructive path. So, 
Paul here is saying something really interesting. He's not saying that God is going to punish sin. He is saying that as we sin and the results of that, that is the punishment for sin. In fact, it's interesting because when it says he gave them over to their sinful desires, this is what they wanted. And so God gave them over. He loosed them. It's the Greek word paradidomai. And it's used in a really interesting sense. It's, a, it, it, it's usually used in talking about fruit as it ripens and then gets overripe and then begins to rot. And so what Paul is saying here is that not that God is going to punish them for their awful behavior. His emphasis is, is different. He's saying that God is already, already punishing them by releasing them to their own way. And he's shifting the meaning of wrath and punishment. So we run from God's presence, and therefore God actively gives us up to this desire. Hell, therefore, is a prison in which the doors are first locked by us on the inside before they're ever locked on the outside by God. Every indication is that these doors would continue forever to be locked from the inside. It means that the worst and the fairest punishment that God can give a person is to allow them their sinful heart's deepest desire. And what is that? From the very beginning, the desire of the sinful human heart is for independence. We want to choose and go our own way. In fact, we're offended if someone says, you can't choose and go your own way. So what is hell then? It's God actively giving us up to what we've freely chosen to go our own way, to be the master of our own fate, to be the captain of our own soul, to get away from him and his control. It's God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get to all of our lives. We've been trying to get there and finally he allows us to get there. People only get in the afterlife what they've most wanted. Either to have God as Savior and Master or to be their own Savior and Master. Hell then is a natural result of our own choice to be apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. You know, a common image that Jesus used of, of hell is fire. Fire, what does it do? Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see a kind of a soul disintegration in that self-centeredness and what self-centeredness creates. But what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually, our, our, our life extends on into eternity. Hell then is that trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever. In his fantasy, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says it this way, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. In fact, you may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. 
So he says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell in each of us. And this is profound to me. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Did you get that? In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Hell, says C.S. Lewis, is the greatest monument to human freedom. It's God's great respect for his creature. He made us in his image. And the main part of that is our right to choose. And he will always respect that because that's part of what makes us like himself. So when Romans 124 says God gave them up to their desires or God loosed them to their desires or gave them over, All God does in the end with people is give them what they want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? Lewis goes on to write, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. In fact, if you think about it, if God forced everyone into heaven, would that make him a more loving God? What would that resolve for you if God forced everyone into heaven? We have a word in our culture for forced love. It's called rape. This rapist God is not a more loving God. It's interesting because Jesus kind of expounds on this every time he used the word hell, almost every single time when you see hell in our English, he used the word Gehenna. And Gehenna doesn't mean hell in Greek. It's talking about a valley that's outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. And it became like the city garbage dump. But the history of it is really interesting because it was in the Valley of Hinnom where under the ancient kings, Israel deserted God and they set up an altar to Molech. And Molech was the God of fire. But what Molech desired, what you had to do to worship Molech is to show your ultimate just fervor for him. You had to sacrifice your children to the fire. And that's what the Israelites did. And God spoke and he condemned it. And he said, that has never entered my mind that this would be a worship. In fact, I condemn it and I abandon it. So basically it's a place where God is not. When Jesus talks about being destroyed in hell, the word he uses for destroyed is apolomai. And That means not to be annihilated out of existence, but to be totaled. It's like if your car, you got in a really bad wreck and your car would be a polamide, okay? It would be totaled, ruined, so as to be useless for its intended purpose. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, historically, personally fall apart. And you put that in a trajectory into eternity and you have hell. You know, fairly often I've met with people who say, I have a personal relationship with a loving God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ at all. Why? 
I would ask. Well, because my God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. But see, this this shows a, a deep misunderstanding of both God himself and the cross. On the cross, God himself, incarnated as Jesus, took the punishment. He didn't visit it on a third party. He took it on himself. So the the question I would ask someone who said that is, what did it cost your kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did your God endure in order to receive us? What did your God do? Did he agonize or cry out? What about the nails and the thorns? The only answer you could give is, well, I just don't think That's necessary. But then ironically, in our attempt to make God more loving, we've actually made him less loving. His love in the end needed to take no action. It was just sentimentality, really no good at all. And the worship of a God like this will at most be cognitive, be ethical, pretty impersonal. But see, a believer who understands what happened at the cross and what Jesus did for us, there's this joyful self-abandonment. There's this humble boldness. There's this constant sense of wonder. Why would God, why would God do this for me? That's why we sing about the blood applied. That's why we sing like, uh, it's such a miracle. It's such an amazing Thing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. Only through the cross could our separation from God be removed. And we're going to spend eternity loving, praising this God for what he's done. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, tells about a woman who came to him. And she said, during a, a really dark time in her life, She had prayed over and over, God, help me find you. God, please help me find you. But it seemed like God was a million miles away. Uh, A Christian friend suggested to her that she might change her prayer to God, please come and find me. God, would you please come and find me? And I would invite you, if you're a skeptic today, you're welcome here but I would invite you to say that, God, come find me. Because her Christian friend said, you know, he's the great shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. He looks for that lost one and he does whatever it takes to find them. She concluded when she was recounting this to Tim Keller, she said, the only reason I can tell you this story, he did, he did. Isaiah 53 tells us a little bit about what Jesus did for us. It's a prophecy, but it's so crazy how it could have been spoken after Jesus' death, but it was spoken before his death. It was telling us what was coming, what was going to happen. And let me just read you a little of Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet says, indeed, who would ever believe it? Who could possibly accept what we've been told? Who has witnessed the awesome power and plan of the eternal in action? Out of emptiness, he came like a tender shoot 
from rock-hard ground. He didn't look like anything or anyone of consequence. He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. So he was despised. He was despised and forsaken by men. This man of suffering, grief's patient friend. As if he was a person to avoid, we looked the other way. He was despised, forsaken, and we took no notice of him. Yet it was our suffering he carried, our pain, our distress, our sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected him, that God was the reason he hurt so badly, but he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. We've all wandered off like shepherdless sheep scattered by our aimless striving and endless pursuits. The eternal one laid on him, this silent sufferer, the sins of us all. And then verse 11 says, as God says, my just servant will justify countless others by taking on their punishment and bearing it away. You know, it's so interesting to me that Jesus said the worst words anyone can ever hear from our heavenly father on the day of judgment is depart from me. Depart from me. Depart from me. Seems simple. Is that really so bad? Yeah, because without the presence of God, it's just us. And so God created a place where he is not. And it's called hell. It's a bubble of space, timeless, but he's not there. And he honors our free will so that all of us who say, you will never rule over me. We're not taken by rape into heaven. No, we have our free will. He has a place where we can go and he won't rule over us. But the reason why Jesus called it Gehenna, the garbage dump, imagine, imagine what mankind has done on this planet in our few thousands of years of existence. And this is with God in the equation. The, the early church fathers used to talk about common grace that he gives to all people. He reigns on the just and the unjust, but you take God out of the equation, exponentially everything becomes worse. There's no community of faith that reaches out to Burundi and takes those little ones, the Batwa, the pygmies, that everyone says, those aren't people. And they've been dying, only two out of 10 of their kids living to age five. And community of faith says, no, we will pour literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, walk in friendship and business with them. And we haven't seen but one child die in the last 10 years. It's amazing what God has done. But you take all of this out of the equation and things are totally different. And you multiply it by infinity as mankind 
left to their own devices, reap what they sow. They become harder and harder. You, you see a little microcosm of hell and addiction. You ever talk to someone in addiction and they act like, well, maybe they want to see some change, but they never do anything about it. And they're tied up and they begin to blame everyone else. And they begin to say, it's not my fault. It's not something I can help. And there's no hope when they're in that situation until they come to a place where they fall on their face. They're flat on their back and they look up and say, God, only a higher power, only you, only you can make the difference for me. God is a gentleman. God honors our free will. God loves us. No one goes to hell except over the tears of God. And he has provided a way. He tore through time and space. Somehow when Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment. You remember, we've seen all of the horrible physical things that you would see when you, when you watch like the passion of the Christ and how he was whipped and how he was scourged and that awful crucifixion where you have to pull up on those nails on your feet to get the next breath. And he experienced that, but that wasn't the worst for him. The worst moment for him was when he yelled out at the top of his voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, if you hardly know someone and they forsake you, it's not a big deal. But when a spouse who promised to love you forever forsakes you, devastating. Imagine the Godhead, Jesus, the son who's been in the presence of the father, always experiencing God turning his back. Depart from me. That's what the cross was. I don't understand it all, but somehow Jesus took our punishment upon himself. And we don't come with great pride or say, look at all my works and look what I've done. We have to come on our knees and we say, Jesus, I receive what you did for me. I may be really moral, but that's not going to make a difference. I may be really immoral, but that doesn't stop you. I receive what you did for me. Be my Lord, be my savior. And all of eternity, we're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, that it washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. That's heaven. That's what it looks like. So there has to be a place where God honors our intent. If we never want him to be the Lord or the master, you can be your own Lord and master throughout eternity. I want you just to close your eyes for a minute. Kind of hard to talk about hell. But if we don't understand that there's hell, we can't understand how good God is. He's so good. He says, it's not his desire that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. He provided the way. 
What about those who haven't heard yet? Remember what Paul said, everyone's without excuse, but that's one reason why we go. He gave us that great commission, go into all the world and share this good news that I have come, that I have taken your sins upon me. That's our job. Church has fallen down on its job so much of the time. Maybe God's calling some of you to go. Maybe it's going to be some really hard places. I talked to a young lady, single lady, the other day. She's going to be going to Syria as a missionary. Is that safe? She said, absolutely not. It doesn't matter. She said, I'm head over heels in love with Jesus, and whatever he asks me to do, I'll do it. Maybe you're here and you're a skeptic. You just change your prayer a little bit because God will meet you. I promise he will. If you'll just change it and say, God, I've been trying to find you. Now I'm asking something different. God, please find me. He'll do it. That's who he is. He's not a million miles away. In him, we live and move and have our being. Father, We ask for your will to come upon us. I would ask that no one within the sound of my voice would perish, but would have eternal life. Those of us with great questions, you honor those. You don't despise those. I'm amazed when I look at Thomas, and we call him Doubting Thomas, but you never called him that. You just said, Thomas, look. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And he fell on his face and said, my Lord and my God, That's what I ask you to do for us. Meet us personally. Find us. Don't let us miss this, God of heaven. God who loves us. God who created us to walk forever with him, to rule and reign. And all the amazing things you have for us. Bring each and every one of us within the sound of my voice into that. And let us choose to let you be the master captain of our soul. Come kingdom of God, be done will of God in Jesus name. Amen.